Well, good morning to you all. Our passage this morning is from 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 17. Please can you turn there now. Now it's not uncommon in many churches to be asked to greet those around you at the start of the service. Given our topic today, the small boy in me thought that a variation of this practice might be fun. I thought it might be great that instead of asking you to greet your neighbour, that it might ask you to smell your neighbour. I quickly realised that would be inappropriate, so we're not going to be doing that. But I am going to be asking you a personal question about yourself. What do you think you smell like to those around you? Please don't answer that. (laughs) It seems like a pretty strange question to come from the pulpit, but it's going to become clear as we read today's text. So let's do that now. 2 Corinthians 2, verses... 12 to 17. Furthermore, when I came to Trias to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ amongst those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to others, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ." The first part of this text, verses 12 and 13, seem a bit out of place here because they seem to be well off topic. We might want to say, well, hang on, Paul, I've got no interest in your travel itinerary. Give me something meaty and spiritual instead. Keep the other stuff for your personal diary. And then we jump ahead to verse 14, which seems a lot more interesting. When we look into the backstory, though, there is actually a lesson for these uh, these few first few words, which does link them to the, the later part of today's verses. Since it is some time since we've been through this previously, let me remind you that uh, both through word of mouth reports and letters from there, Paul has become extremely concerned about what is going on in the Corinthian church. And of course that's why we have these two letters to them in scripture today. If you think about it, the sheer length of First and Second Corinthians tells us something about the level of Paul's anxiety for that church. I mean, there's no way that he would have spent such a lot of time working on a minor problem, would he? So what we read today only serves to reinforce that understanding because what is happening in this account is that Paul has gone to preach the gospel in Trias and he's had great success there apparently because the Lord has blessed that work. I think in those circumstances most of us would stay put because the ministry is flourishing, so why move on? But Paul does exactly that. He moves on. He he leaves what he is doing because he is so very anxious to hear from Titus, who has literally actually been in Corinth, to talk to Titus, to, to see him face to face, to hear from his lips how things are going back in Corinth. And that speaks to me of a mighty concern, a a deep ache in Paul's pastoral heart for the church there. 
And while that might be interesting history, it might also leave you wondering what the point of all that might be today. Well, let me suggest this. If Paul was willing to set aside successful evangelizing for the sake of the saints in Corinth, it tells us we ought to take the doctrine that we gain from these books to the Corinthians very seriously. He stopped preaching the gospel to go and see what the, letter of the, the effect of these letters had been. This isn't some irrelevant debate about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. This is nitty-gritty stuff, the things we need to know about every day. Just for example, in chapters 1 and 2, we've already learned about how a Christian might deal with suffering and tribulation, about the depth of God's comfort for his children, the importance of being simple and sincere in our character and conduct, and how to forgive a person who has experienced church discipline. I think it's pretty obvious that none of us are so personally complete that we don't need this kind of advice in our lives. And these books, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, are full of those things if we take the time to look. So we have that general lesson, but it does still leave us with a specific problem of the slightly peculiar leap sideways from diary entry on Troas to fulsome praise of God. Why is it written this way? I believe it's because Paul is directing us to the rock that sustains him. I mean, I could be wrong because maybe I'm putting words into to, to Paul's mouth, but if, if I stop and I try to think about Paul's state of mind at this time, I think there was probably some serious turmoil going on there. The ongoing deep desire to preach the gospel, maybe there was a bit of guilt at abandoning that work in Troas, there's worry over what's going on in Corinth. Where is Titus? I need to hear from him. I need to see him. And so these things will be going round and round in his head and dragging on his heart. Now, all of us here have some experience of what these inner conflicts feel like and, and we know how much they can pull you down. So Paul is distressed, maybe distracted from his usual work in you know, not sleeping too well. If that carries on, if his mind continues with this downward spiral, pretty soon he's going to be in a bad place. So what does he do? He turns away from the world and turns to his heavenly Father. Not, woe is me, how will I ever escape from these troubles by my own efforts, but... Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. He's reminding himself that whatever comes, whether Titus delivers bad news or good news from Corinth, or he carries on working in Macedonia, or he's persecuted or stoned, or whatever happens to Paul, in the end, God will always lead him in triumph. Always. And that's something we too need to be reminded of because there are many moments when our personal world seems to be entirely and eternally constructed of custard. And there's somebody standing in the wings ready to pour another jug of that steaming yellow goo on it if you aren't paying close attention. But we are being reminded here of that for those who stand in Christ, we do not have to let that custard drown us because we too are part of that triumph. This does not mean that Christians will never encounter hardship because that would just be a lie. We will 
And we have often in eye-watering amounts, just like every other human on the planet. The difference is that when we are swimming in the custard 500, we're not doing so alone. The Lord is there alongside us. He hears us call out. He helps us in ways that we often don't see or understand. And most of all, we can swim with our eye on the edge of the pool. It is not. It is never unreachable. There is the hope that comes with the certainty of salvation that when our life is ended, God will be standing there to pull us out to live with him forever. And that will be as far from any custard at all as is possible. And this is why Paul has swung from his inward difficulties to outward praise. He sees what awaits. He wants us to to see what awaits. So, what is it? Is it big or is it small? Is it average? The answer is that it's positively huge. To give the readers of this letter some insight on that, Paul, uh, on that point, Paul uses a term that would have been very familiar to people who lived during Roman times. We look at the beginning of verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now on its own, that's a pretty stirring phrase and one that I could easily turn into a sermon all by itself. And we will look at that a bit more closely in a moment. But the word that we are particularly interested in right now is this word triumph. Now in those days, triumph was more than just a word meaning, yay, we won, fist pump, leaping in the air, jubilation, etc. A triumph with a capital T was a really big deal. It was a special ceremony that was reserved for military commanders and Ricardus Macor, the famous Roman rugby player. It took the form of a ritual procession, and it was the highest honor bestowed upon a victorious general in the ancient Roman Republic. It was granted and paid for by the Senate, and it was enacted in the city of Rome. To be awarded such a thing, a man was required to have been a magistrat cum imperio, which meant holding supreme and independent command, and someone who had won a major land or sea battle, and killed at least 5,000 of the enemy. The ceremony began with a solemn pr procession from the Campus Martius to the capital, passing through the Forum and the Via Sacra long streets that were adorned with garlands and lined with people shouting, Eo Triumphe, which literally means Hail Triumphal Procession. The magistrates and members of the Senate came first, followed by musicians, the sacrificial animals, the spoils of war, and the captured prisoners in chains. And there, riding in a chariot, festooned with laurel, the victorious general or triumphator wore the royal purple and gold tunic, holding a laurel branch in his right hand and an ivory scepter in his left. And there was, as a small detail here, a slave who was holding a crown over the general's head while reminding him in the midst of his glory that he was a mortal man. Important detail. The general soldiers marched last and they were singing whatever they liked, which apparently included rude songs and scandal about their commander. And upon reaching the Capitoline temple, the general presented his laurel, along with thanks offerings to the image of Jupiter. Then the prisoners were usually slain, and the ceremony concluded with a feast for the magistrates and the senate. So, this probably wasn't as much fun for the prisoners as it was for everyone else. 
I've gone to some trouble to give you all of this detail because I really want you to try and build the picture of this massive pomp and atmosphere of such a thing in your mind's eye. Since that's exactly what Paul's use of the word triumph would have done for the original readers of this letter. Do you have something of that? I hope so. Now with that in mind, can you imagine how much greater a triumph led by God himself would be? You know, when you stop, there are so many parallels to be seen, but on a much, much grander scale. The victorious general is Christ himself, the risen Lord who has won the mightiest of all battles against sin and death. In his wake comes the army of the saints, millions and millions of us singing songs of praise and lining the streets of heaven alongside them is the heavenly host shouting their praise, glory to God and the Lamb. Can you see that? Can you see that if the Roman version was impressive, this is sublime, immeasurably better. Can you see that with this mighty triumph in mind, Jesus was able to endure the shame of carrying that cross through the streets and also what followed. As encouraging and exciting as this picture might be, there is also a very sobering parallel too. Do you remember the prisoners are put to death? Well, sadly, this is the fate too of those who do not accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. They will suffer eternal death and separation from God. No new heaven, no earth, no end to suffering and tears. So, which part of God's triumph do you want to play? You have a choice. And it's not something you want to put off till tomorrow because no one on earth knows the day of that final triumphal procession and judgment in heaven. Okay, let's go on to look at verse 14 in a little more detail. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. As I said just now, this could easily be a whole sermon, but for now, I just want to offer my thoughts on just three parts of this phrase. This phrase. First, direction. It's customary these days when one is in the triumph seat to mumble something along the lines of, well, I want to give a big shout out to my mum, my granny Muriel, and my sponsors at Ekaterhuna Custard Powder for making this great victory possible. What we're really saying is, look at me, I'm marvellous. I not him. It's no longer understood that God is the only one who really deserves thanks for any of our victories. And that is most particularly and specifically true of this matter here, which is the triumph of salvation. And there's this very familiar um, verse in Ephesians 2 that points us out very clearly. For by grace you have been saved by faith, and not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is solely God's triumph through Christ, not our own. We are the beneficiaries and participants in that triumph, yes, but we are never its architect. God conceived salvation all by himself, and he ex executed it by himself too. 
It was not something that could ever be done by any human and not one, any one of us has ever done anything to deserve it. Quite the opposite, in fact. And this is why, as it is written here, we should give our thanks and praise to him always. Secondly, duration. Are there only particular moments on days that begin with S in the third month of the eighth year when the custard clouds clear and therefore you can be triumphant? No. The Greek word used here for verse four in, in verse 14 for always means, any guesses? Any guesses what always means? Always. Once you're saved, God always and continuously leads you in triumph. There may be an unbroken layer of custard overhead for weeks at a time. But you know what? Just like those flights when you take off on a grey day, that blue sky is right there once you've got a bit of height. And it will certainly be there too when your days on earth are done for good. And knowing that makes our difficulties bearable. Thirdly, doing. Ideas are great, but action is way better. All of our hope hinges on Christ who did what had to be done and who was the only one who could do what had to be done. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Christ, the risen man Jesus, Son of God, without him, and him alone, there would be no triumphal procession at all and no hope for any of us in the face of our holy God. It was Christ who paid the penalty for our sins, took the punishment due to us on himself by dying on the cross and made it possible for anyone who says that they are sorry for their sin and makes him Lord of their lives thereafter to join that triumphal parade with all of the benefits. That's not hard at all, really. You might have to give up a little bit of pride maybe. But are you going to be watching or joining the parade? I wonder. Let's finish up by talking a bit about smells. After all, it is where we started today. We read that although the big and the hard stuff has been done by Christ, we do have a job since God through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Now the picture here is an extension of the triumph parade metaphor. You see... Along with the many other participants, there were some priests too who were swinging censers with sweet-smelling incense as part of that procession. To those who were victors, this was naturally a pleasant aroma, but to those prisoners in chains at the rear, they knew what it meant. They knew what was coming. They were condemned. And it was a smell that meant their death. So Paul uses this image to show what the effect of Christians ought to be as they move around the world. And I say ought because oftentimes we are guilty of hiding our smell under a bushel to mix some scripture up. You know, I'd never thought much about smell in a scriptural sense before. We often think about seeing and hearing the gospel at work, yet 
Here it is presented as a fragrance. It's not the only time this image is used. There are quite a few um, biblical references to God being pleased by the aroma of a sacrifice and smells can indicate uh, physical dec decay or the results of judgment. The Bible says that to be a stench to someone is to be held in contempt or hatred by that person. So I, I really like the idea presented here. It seems to me that sight and sound, the things that we usually associate with preaching the gospel, are actually things that can be quite easily prevented from entering a space. I mean, if somebody's talking to you, all you have to do is close the door in their face. But fragrances are not so easy. This word diffuses here, used in verse 14, reminds me of the way that smells can slide unobstructed through even the smallest spaces so that they can be perceived everywhere. And consequently, for me it points to how irresistible the gospel must be of an omnipotent God. Nothing can prevent his word from being heard everywhere. Sadly, though, not all people will receive the good news as a life-giving fragrance. As we have already noted, to some folk it only holds the smell of death since they reject the Lord's offer of pardon and therefore are condemned. I do believe that whatever the outward show of defiance is, on some unconscious level, the gospel always convicts the human spirit. Since diffuses in. You can't stop it. And perhaps this is why unbelievers often have such a strong, even unreasonable reaction to Christians to share their who share their faith. They just cannot stand the smell of the grave. As I reflect on the matter of smell and how our fragrance might relate to preaching the gospel in everyday life, it seems to me that the main thing about being that fragrance is that you have to be present in the room even the potent smell of surstroming the infamous swedish fermented fish is not able to cross an ocean or a city no the best way to be a smelly is by being close to the smeller this just highlights what we already know firstly like jesus we must not set ourselves apart from the world we must be in it we must walk and talk and work our lives where other people are, not set ourselves aside in some ivory tower. And secondly, we must not be aloof from the world when we are in it, for we experience its hardships too. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do as the world does, but people are going to be more greatly disposed to hear our message if we take the time to listen to theirs first, to admit to our own hopes and fears and failings. We need to be the genuine article to walk the talk. The last part of our text reads, Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now I think I might have used this example before in another sermon, but it turns out it works here as well. Some years ago, Joe and I were having a holiday in Rarotonga. And as you do, we went to the bustling hub of commerce there, which is about three shops. 
And while I was in one of these shops, I spotted a bottle of aftershave. And it caused my wife some embarrassment because I immediately burst out laughing. You see, the bottle and the box, well, they look just like the box and bottle of the famous Brute brand. But instead, they bore the inspiring title, Bert. <laughs> in my mind's eye, I could just see some young man saving up his pennies to buy a bottle of Bert to impress his girlfriend. Now, I only have one regret, and that's that I didn't buy the bottle to show you. But I'm more than certain that if the name didn't match, the fragrance didn't either. On comparison, it would be immediately obvious which was real and which was not. And although Brute may be brutal in a confined space, I'm pretty sure that it smells better than Bert. I believe the same can be said of the fragrance of our testimony. Any observer will be readily able to tell whether we are the real deal or not, and therefore whether our message is the real deal or not, and therefore whether it is important to listen or not. We must, as it says here, speak and behave with sincerity since we do so in the sight of God in Christ. Imagine how it would feel if God's holy and pleasant fragrance working through you added another believer to the heavenly triumph parade. Just think how that would be. May the smell be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we can't thank you enough for the depth of your word. Thank you for the direction that it so clearly contains. I pray that through your Holy Spirit we would be prompted to seek that direction and enabled to follow it for your glory and your gospel in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.